0: Welcome, welcome podcast listeners to another episode of Curator's Choice. This is your host, Ayla Anderson. And today we're going to be speaking with Garrett Barmore at the W.M. Keck Earth Science and Mineral Engineering Museum. Quite a mouthful. But this little museum is actually located in the middle of the University of Nevada, Reno, which is my old stomping grounds where I got my degree. So I got to see this a few times when I was going to college. And then now I actually got to go back as the budding professional that I am and interview Garrett about some of the really cool items that they have at this museum and you really can't talk about mining, silver mining in Nevada without talking about John Mackey. He is one of the lesser known but really influential and important silver miners, uh, mostly in Virginia City. And we're going to hear all about him and his gigantic silver collection, which is going to include a 501 pound candle holder made of pure silver. We also have some ham holders and some melon scoops and some celery vases, which kind of have a fun little backstory to them as well. And then kind of talking about something that's a little bit more in the past, we're going to be sharing with you guys the Helicoprion fossil, which is this crazy spiral tooth jaw fossil that created quite a stir for quite a while in the paleontology community because they had no idea what in the world this thing even was and then we also talk about the giant sloth tracks that they have at the museum and they are the only giant sloth tracks in North America and they're from this giant 10 feet tall ground sloths that traveled across North America. So sit back and enjoy, and thank you so much for tuning in. And if you want to see any pictures from today's episode, I'm definitely going to be posting them on social media. I've got pictures of the Helicoprion fossil, of the giant sloth footprints, or you never know, Bigfoot footprints, you know, who am I to say? I'm also going to have some pictures of inside of the museum and pictures of John Mackey and part of his life. And yeah, so check it out on Facebook, on Instagram, and then we have our main website that is www.curatorschoicepodcast.com. And on there, I also have a bunch of links that pertain to what we talk about in the episode. So check it out and uh, let's get started. So thank you so much for being a part of the podcast with us. Well, of
1: course. Well, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Well, tell, tell us about this this really cool and pretty unique museum.
1: Yeah. So uh, the W. Keck Museum is uh, Earth Science Museum. We have three main collecting areas, which is paleontology, mining history and rocks and minerals. And by far our the largest part of our collection is our rock and mineral collection. And we're particularly known for our mining ore collection. And uh, We were founded in 1908 along with the Mackey School in order to support the mining program and the mining mission here at the university.
0: I mean, we're Nevada and mining is like probably one of the most, if not the most important industry here.
1: Yes, in fact, when the university was founded in 1874, uh, UNR is the land grant university of Nevada and it's in the Nevada state constitution that the the, uh, land grant university has to teach Uh, Agricultural, engineering, and mining. And so, um, mining has been a part of the university since 1874, and kind of starts and stops. But then when the Mackey School was built in 1908, that's when we really um, developed a strong and uh, vibrant mining program, which we are still teaching mining engineering today.
0: And I mean, we have the museum, and the museum has been here since day one, right?
1: Yes, so the museum is is an original fixture of the building. And we're still using the original Red Oak cases from 1908. And uh, the building is unique. Well, it's on the National Register of Historic Places. But one of the unique aspects of that is the museum is also mentioned on the registry. And generally, interior elements are not included on the National Register of Historic Places. So um, that makes it very unique in its own right.
0: So you walk in and and there's these gigantic doors that you walk through. Mm -hmm. You can see a statue out front. You come inside and there's also a library here. Mm -hmm. And then if you go a little bit farther in, that's where the museum is. Yes. So that's what you mean when you say it's not usually an interior building.
1: Right, yes. So uh, generally, the National Register of Historic Places is only focused on exterior features. And so having an, an interior feature like the museum is unusual.
0: And so who is the man on the statue out front, the, <laughs> bi- the big man?
1: So our namesake is John Mackey, who was a, a miner and mine owner in the 19th century uh, and known for his work in Virginia City. And John Mackey was born on a dirt floor in Dublin and was part of the Irish diaspora in the 1830s and 40s. He grew up in the Five Points area of New York and was a Newsy, very rough growing up. And in 1859, excuse me, 1850, he came west to the goldfields of California, worked his way up, and uh, struck boraska, as they say, which is the opposite of bonanza. He struck out, he, he didn't make his fortune, but he learned how to mine and gained invaluable mining experience. And then 1859, he, uh, he and his friend Jack walked from the Downeyville area in Downeyville, California, to Virginia City, Nevada, over the Sierras, and uh, worked their way up. They started um, mucking out mines and digging tunnels in exchange for what was called feet at the time, or essentially stock in the mine. And by the late 1860s, John Mackey was able to buy his first mine and made some money, which allowed him to buy other mines. And then in the uh, early 1870s, his mine the consolidated Virginia struck the Big Bonanza, which today is still one of the largest um, silver deposits ever discovered. The ore body that they discovered at around the uh, eighteen hundred foot level was three hundred feet in diameter by one hundred feet in diameter. It was a massive deposit of silver. And by eighteen seventy four, John Mackey was making about um three to four hundred thousand dollars a month in pure profit. That was his walk away after all the bills and all of his partners were paid.
0: And it's interesting because nowadays people look at Nevada and they kind of think gold. Or at least right. I mean, that's where I came from is like gold mining. Yes. But it's the Silver State, because of all the silver that was found, and like you said, the largest silver deposit is still in mm-hmm. Virginia City, which is just a half hour drive right from, from Reno where we're sitting right now.
1: Yes, and Nevada was known for silver all the way up into the 20th century. And then it really wasn't until Goldfield in the early 20th century, then later, of course, the Carlin Trend, which we're still mining today, that Nevada really became known for gold, um, but the main reason there's still a lot of silver in, in Nevada, still a lot of silver in Virginia City, but it just doesn't make econ- economic sense. In the late 19th century, Nevada, or excuse me, the United States went to the gold standard, uh, which essentially devalued silver overnight, and that's really what led to the end of mining in Virginia City.
0: Well, so so Mackey made his money mm-hmm. through the silver industry, and then he mm-hmm. became a huge big shot. Honestly, he was. Unfortunately, not widely known, but locally around these parts, I mean, you can't go anywhere without knowing right. at least a little bit of this man. So where were his mines exactly? I know they're around here, but did, you were talking, you were telling us about the different mines that he had. They were in Virginia City. They were all in Virginia City. Yes,
1: he did have some, some mines up in Idaho. Um, there is actually a town in Idaho called Mackey named after him, um, but they never really took off. Um, but he made his first fortune in Virginia City. After, his mines, uh, after he closed, it, closed down the mines and kind of the symbolic end of, of the golden age of mining in Virginia City, even though there was mining all the way into the 1940s, was when he shut off the pump to the consolidated, uh, the CNC shaft of the consolidated mine um, in 1886. And water rose from the 3200 level to about the 1500 level um, overnight. And after that, he left and went back east. And um, I think that I think it, he, the last time he was in Virginia City was uh, late eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties. And he heavily invested in telecommunications um, companies and got involved in telephone and telegraph. And actually took on a major monopoly and won, and made it affordable so the average person could send telegraphs internationally. And uh, he even got into telegraph cable lane in the Atlantic and was involved in one of the first cables that was successful in laying across the Atlantic. And then his son, Clarence Mackey, who I think we'll talk a little bit about, continued that and invested in and laid the first cable from California to Japan in the Pacific. And in fact, the John W. Mackey, which is a cable-laying ship, was a floating morgue for the Titanic disaster in 1912. And so in the early 20th century, the Mackeys would have been a household name, and they come up a lot.
0: Well, you were talking to me earlier about how they're kind of like the unknown
1: mm-hmm.
0: millionaire, billionaires of their age, mm-hmm. depending on, you know, which type of uh, currency you're using, really. <laughs> right. So why were they so unknown to us today? Like well, They one were of such the, a household name.
1: One of the reasons is at the time, um, kind of ironically, um, John Mackey specifically was very well respected and thought very positively of in, in the papers. And a big part of that was because of busting that tele- telegraph, monopoly is he was kind of seen as a uh, as a champion of the um, underdog. He also paid his miners very well, $4 a day in the 1860s and 70s, which was an extremely high, high wage at the time.
0: Wasn't it like $1 a day? Y-
1: yes. And he actually, because he was paying that high, other mines in Virginia City had to pay that high. So Virginia City miners were some of the highest paid industrial workers in the United States at the time. And John Mackey gave millions of dollars to a charity, usually anonymously, built the first hospital in Virginia city, rebuilt the Catholic church after the fire of 74, and several other projects all through his life. And so he never, they never, the Mackey family never created a foundation. There was never a Mackey family foundation because the main reason to create a foundation at that time, which we see with like the Rockefellers and the Carnegies, was to rehab your name Uh, the rockefellers and the carnegies had horrible reputations and were seen as robber barons as the destruction of their workers infamous rich people and uh became rich on the back of their workers and 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 i'm not denying that mackey wasn't part of a exploitative um, system because he definitely was and he benefited from that system but the carnegies and the rockefellers had a horrible reputation and so to rehab that reputation, they created foundations. And now when we think of the uh, Rockefeller or Carnegie, we think of Carnegie Hall. We think of Rockefeller Plaza. We think of these big charitable gifts and these big um, foundations. And uh, the Mackies never saw really any reason to rehab their name. And there was some discussion of foundation that never came around. And they mostly just gave their money away anonymously or privately.
0: And this kind of leads into one of your biggest collection pieces that we wanted to talk about today, which was their silver collection. Yes. So tell us a little bit, how did he accumulate this just massive collection of silver and what was it all about?
1: So both Mary Louise and John Mackey both came from fairly humble beginnings. John Mackey, of course, was a poor Irish immigrant. Mary Louise was born actually in California and had a very disastrous first marriage, a couple deaths of uh, her daughter was killed. Her husband abandoned them and, and was an, uh, an alcoholic and then eventually died. And she was kind of destitute in Virginia City. So they came from very humble beginnings and then became wealthy very quickly. And at that time, this was you know the, the height of the Victorian age and we're entering the Gilded Age. In order to be part of society, you had to have a silver service. And one thing that John Mackey had was silver. So not only did he want a silver service, it was also a way to kind of show where his wealth came from. And there was just so much money, so much wealth coming out of the, um, Con Virginia, uh, one of, um, John Mackey's business rivals once said that you never want to take on John Mackey because if he runs out of money, he goes to Nevada and digs up more. And so John Mackey brought up and legend says that he went down and brought up the first bit of, ore that went into the silver service himself. And which is very um, very possible because John Mackey was a miner to the end and spent a lot of time down the pit. And he sent four boxcars of silver bullion to New York and told Tiffany and company to make pieces until they ran out of silver. And they made the Mackey silver set, which has originally had over 1,200 pieces. And here at the museum, we have about 54 pieces that were donated by the family in the 1950s. And this service would have been used for breakfast, lunch and dinner and used probably daily. The more you use um, silver, the less you have to polish it.
0: And it's an extravagant collection. Yes. You know, we have you have some of the largest pieces here. Right. But they are gigantic pieces to show off this amazing silver wealth.
1: Yes. And I've always wondered what their table would have looked like to handle all that weight. How did they fit all this on there? (laughs) Um, Well, they were very specialized pieces and they would have only been brought out for specific things. So like the candelabras each weigh 50 pounds, but you know, if you, if you weren't eating melon, they wouldn't have the melon eaters, right? And, but they had nine mahogany boxes that were custom made for the collection and they would have traveled with them. So they had homes in Paris, New York, San Francisco, and London, and the service would have come with them.
0: So one of my favorite pieces that you have downstairs is Mm -hmm. actually a celery dish. It's like a celery holder.
1: Yes, a celery vase.
0: Celery vase. So why in the world, no one, no one, I mean, I don't even like celery now unless it's got cinnamon and raisins on it. (laughs) But why back then was celery such a big deal that it got its own dish in silver? Well,
1: so at the time they they were really embracing um, the classics. So they were really bringing back a lot of Greek and Roman architecture and when I say they, I mean the Victorians and studying the classics was very popular very at the posh. time. Very posh. Yes. And celery has a lot of connotations in ancient Greek culture. In fact, before they wore laurel leaves, they would have worn celery leaves and it represents a uh, death, but it's also connected with Bacchus and feasting. And so they would have picked very leafy celery. So it would have been very um, green and um, very decorative.
0: And so what, they would just have these almost like as a flower vase on yeah. the dinner table mm-hmm. while they were dining? Yes. Did they eat it?
1: N- uh, not necessarily.
0: Really? So it was basically a flower vase with yeah. celery?
1: <laughs> yes.
0: That is really, really mm-hmm. interesting. So they were obviously wealthy enough, just by chance. Do you have any idea where in the world they were getting the celery from that it was coming to Nevada?
1: Well, no, they were. They did not live in Nevada. Um, really? And I thought
0: that they must have lived somewhere near Virginia City. No.
1: So, sorry, that that's a misconception. John Mackey had a had a home in Virginia City that he lived there when, when he was attending business. Uh, and John and Mary Louise Mackey met in Virginia City. But very quickly, essentially, as soon as they had the money, Mary Louise Mackey left Virginia City and she has gotten some flack for that, saying that she turned her back on Nevada, but she had a very rough go of it. And for a large part of her time in Virginia City, she was barely making ends meet to support her daughter by being a seamstress and and so I don't blame her for you know wanting to see the world and if you know if you're worth 150 million dollars in the 1870s who blame who can blame you for buying a mansion in Paris
0: and we did the math when they died in
1: 1902 when John Mackey died um, he would have been worth around 4.6 billion dollars in today's money in today's money
0: rich 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 guy that we don't hear a lot about in history because he didn't make his own what is it called Foundation. Foundation. Yes. Because he didn't make his own
1: foundation. Yes. Really crazy. And so very quickly, Mary Louise Mackey moved to San Francisco and then eventually to Paris. And so this service would have been used in Paris and London and, and, and later New York. And John Mackey lived in Virginia City just to maintain his business. And in the fire of 1874, his house was burned down. So he moved into the superintendent's office for the, oh, I can't remember the mine off the cup of, the top of my head. It might have been the, uh, I don't think it was the Hale and Narcross, but today that building is now called the Mackey Mansion, but it was actually the superintendent's house for a mine, and John Mackey just lived there temporarily while he was tending his business. But he would spend a couple years in Virginia City, and then he would spend a couple years with his family, and he would go sometimes six months or a year in between seeing his family, but he would travel from Virginia City by rail to New York, get on a boat, and go to Europe. And the Mackeys would entertain General Grant, while he was a candidate, had a huge party for Grant while he was running for president in Paris. And Mayor Louise Mackey actually asked if she could um, drape the Arc de Triomphe in in American flags and bunting, and the French government said no.
0: (laughs) Well, you told me something about the home that they had in Paris was actually now is in in an embassy?
1: Yes, so the Mackey Mansion in Paris is now the Belgian embassy, and it's right off the Arc de Triomphe. So there's the big circle around the Arc, and um, their property butts right up to that street, so.
0: And you also told me another funny story about visiting the Tsar.
1: Yes, so the Mackies um, were invited to the Tsar's uh, coronation in the, late, later part of the 19th century, and they were made special U.S. diplomats, cultural diplomats for that. And the Mackeys actually received more press than the Tsar did. And many historians actually consider Mary Louise Mackey to be one of the first internationally known American women. And uh, she um, had audience, she um, had tea with Queen Victoria and entertained and was the talk of the town of Paris. Wow. and it was very much part of that uh, society.
0: So uh, we're going to kind of gear away a little bit from this <laughs> super fancy silver and talk uh, a little bit about some more dust covered items.
1: Well, yes, I mean, not too dusty. I mean, uh, not, not <laughs> dusty, the fact
0: that you guys have a dirty museum, but just something that came from way, way, way before. <laughs> right.
1: So uh, the, the Mackie Silver is located in our lower lower gallery and then uh, on our main, main gallery of rocks and minerals. And then upstairs, we have mining history and paleontology. So on the mezzanine, we have these objects, which are giant sloth tracks. And they're about 50,000 years old, and they would have been from the um, Carson City trackway, uh, which was found outside of Carson City, actually on the site of the Nevada State Prison. So it was discovered in the 1870s. And when they were first discovered, it was hypothesized that they were giant human or giant man prints. But, Bigfoot proof. Well, Possibly. <laughs> and then over the course of about 20 30 years there was a scientific argument over these tracks and and it actually was a um, paleontologist out of Los Angeles who was who found a um, an intact giant sloth skeleton at uh, La Brea tar pits and made a anatomically correct model of their front their front feet and forearms and found that they fit perfectly in the trackways so um, these are giant sloth tracks. And in fact, these are the only giant sloth tracks found in North America.
0: Wow. Tell us a little bit more about what this sloth, what was it like? I mean, because you can see the picture on the mm-hmm. website, obviously, but you don't really have a good grasp of how large it actually
1: is. So um, specifically, this was the Harland ground sloth. And uh, the giant ground sloth could get up to about 10 to 12 feet tall and weigh a ton. And they were herbivores one of the cool things about their anatomy is they had dermoliths osteoderms excuse me osteoderms and what osteoderms are is they're little bones that are inside of their skin so they're in dermal layer but they are bones so it gives them a kind of a bit of plating and that protects them from predators like the smilodon or the saber-toothed cat of jumping on their backs.
0: So was this plating all over their bodies or just down their backs?
1: Just mostly on their backs and it would have been in their dermal layer, so you wouldn't have seen it. And they were free floating bones, kind of like, you know, ch- chain mail. And their main defense against uh, predators was their size, they were just real big.
0: And I know that they ate sagebrush, right?
1: Well, at this time, Nevada, Clearly would have... I don't know that
0: Actually,
1: <laughs> <laughs> at this time, Nevada would have been a lot of tundra would have looked a lot more like Alaska. Oh, um, because the there were glaciers as far south as central Oregon. Um, that's as far south that the polar ice caps were. They would have probably eaten, you know, heather and roots and other things like that. In fact, they like modern sloths. They had large claws, which they would have used for digging. Uh, You'll notice if you look at the pictures on the website that the tracks kind of look like footprints. And the reason for that is they would actually walk in a way where their claw would go down and turn, and they would rest kind of on their wrist. And that would protect their claws, and that would um, carve out um, that shape that you see.
0: So this gigantic species Mm -hmm. was a land-dwelling mammal, correct? Yes. So we have one that was uh, down in the ocean and created quite a scientific stir because nobody could figure out what the heck was going on with this fossil.
1: Yes, so this next fossil is a Helicoprion. And the Helicoprion would have lived about 200, 200, 215 million years ago. It was a victim of the uh, Permian extinction. So it lived in the late Permian. And we believe this was a shark type animal we're not entirely sure if it was an actual shark or just similar to sharks and what this particular fossil is is what's called a tooth whorl and if you haven't i urge you to go to the website because it's really hard to imagine if you're not familiar but um, like modern sharks with modern sharks um, their teeth never stop growing and they have rows of teeth and so they're conveyor belt exactly so the new teeth just push out their their old teeth with a helicoprion we believe that the entire lower jaw would be forced out and around into this tooth world to give it the spiral shape and so when looking at this fossil you're looking at it from the profile so it's kind of like a tooth beard and it actually took paleontologists years to figure out what the helicoprion might be because the shape threw off a lot of paleontologists and The main way of identifying a fossil is by comparing it to other fossils or other living animals, other examples. To the best of my knowledge, no living animal, or any other animal for that matter, has had a tooth whorl. So after being confounded for quite some time, uh, eventually paleontologists realized that the teeth looked a heck of a lot like shark teeth. And then this led to the hypothesis that um, it essentially was an early evolutionary trait that would have uh, predated the rose. Um, or been an alternative to the rows of teeth, and obviously it wasn't very success, su- successful because other sharks did survive the Permian extinction.
0: So this Helicoprion,
1: mm-hmm.
0: where is it? Fa- where was it found?
1: So um, Helic- Helicoprion uh, fossils can be found in California, Nevada, and Arizona. And that's it. Worldwide, um, to the best of our knowledge, yes. Wow. Yeah.
0: So it wasn't. Didn't seem like it was the most successful shark species.
1: <laughs> Well, Well, if it was a shark, we don't know. Right. And it's also important to know that during this time, Nevada would have been around three miles underwater. So for the majority of its history, Nevada was deep ocean. And that's one of the reasons why there's so much sandstone in Nevada and by large the American West, is because it's that seabed being compacted by millions and billions of gallons of water.
0: Wow, that's really, really cool. (laughs) And you guys have quite a few different fossils here. And I was asking you... (laughs) what your collection display was compared to what you guys have in storage. Mm -hmm.
1: Yes, Um, like most museums, only about 5% of our collection is on display.
0: Which is just crazy.
1: (laughs) We have been collecting for 150 years and we are also a research museum. And so a large, a large chunk of our collection um, may not be the most exciting to have um, on exhibit, but it's very important for research. And we have researchers come from all over the world uh, to, to see our collection.
0: Do I'm um, just out of curiosity, mm-hmm. do you guys do testing of different kinds? Can people bring minerals in and kind of get an idea of what it is?
1: So we do not do mineral identification, and the main reason is because I'm the only employee here and I'm not a geologist. I can help with some historic objects and, and mining my my background's more in museology and mining history. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you do need help with a uh, identification, I can help point you in the right direction. But I suggest even taking it to your local rock shop a lot of times they can help you.
0: Well, and hopefully with everyone, you know, kind of going farther along with COVID and we're, we can almost see the light. Yes. Hopefully the museum will be opening, you know, relatively soon. We are currently
1: working on um, a reopening plan and we're hoping to be reopened um, uh, by the beginning of the fall semester.
0: Oh, wonderful. So yeah. come on in through the gigantic tall doors, <laughs> walk right past Mackie and, and come inside and check out Check out the really cool museum—the three-story, little compact mineral deposit you guys have here. <laughs> yes, and we would
1: love—we would love to, to to have you. And in the meantime, if you go to our website, uh, unr.edu/keck, you can check out our program Mineral Monday, where we have over 75 uh, videos that range from a minute to five minutes on objects in our collection. We go out to an active mine site to uh, a geothermal plant. Sand Mountain and um, uh, many other things. And our most recent episode, I discussed the difference between a rock and a mineral.
0: What does, what does Keck, who's Keck?
1: So in the 1980s, we received this major remodel uh, where we have the, our current layout in the building, but also it jacked up the entire building and put in um, essentially seismic isolators so that in the case of an earthquake, the earth moves around the building and the building stays put. And a major donation for that project was from the Keck Foundation, who was named after William Keck, who was a um, major oil man in California in the 20th century.
0: Okay, cool. Well, thank you so much for being on my podcast. Yeah, no problem. It. It yeah, thank wonderful.
1: you. Thank you for uh, thinking of the Keck.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thank you, yeah. Keck. Thank you, Keck and Matthew. <laughs>